Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. We are beginning this morning a series on the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. And there are a lot of ways to do this. I, I struggled with, wrestled with how to best teach the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so I will say from the outset, if you, if you ever think this, you're going to be absolutely right. You're going to think that I left something out. Uh, you're right. I will, will leave a lot of stuff out. Uh, to truly teach the entire life and teachings of Jesus Christ could take years to do. Uh, given that we are limited uh, once a week to gather together and in, and in a sermon, maybe 30, 40 minutes, uh, it would literally take years to work through. So I will cr- cross over and skip over more than I cover in the life and teachings of Christ. And that's a good thing because that means that Christ has given us a lot in His words. There, there is so much there. And so... In this series, The Life and Teachings of Jesus Christ, I have chose to work through the book of John. Now, in the book of John, here's part of the, here's part of the struggle. The, there are four books that record the life and times of Jesus Christ. And in your Bibles, it says the gospel according to Matthew at the very beginning. And it's the gospel according to Luke. I went back last night and looked in a King James version Bible from the 70s and that Bible says the gospel according to John. And the reason it says that is that it is the story of Christ written from the perspective of four different men. If someone were to follow me around, four people were to follow me around for three years uh, and record what I said and did, It would be a really boring story for one, probably. Uh, It wouldn't be as exciting as the Gospels. Uh, And two, uh, those four people would come away with very different perspectives based on who they were writing the story to. The four Gospels have different audiences, and it comes out in how they write. The style, the personality of those people uh, all comes out through uh, the Gospel according to uh, that particular person who wrote the book. And that is not to say that the words aren't divinely inspired. They are. This is Scripture. And these words were written at the highest possible level of inspiration. But the way that the Bible works is God allows the writer to speak through, uh, to write according to their style, their intellect, their personality. Uh, Different writers have different styles. I can pick up a book uh, immediately and kind of tell uh, if, it's a, if it's a writer that I know, I, I'd say, yes, this sounds like the way that this person writes and talks. Uh, I, I can usually tell, and I won't mention their name, there's a well-known uh, preacher who I've read a couple of his books, and I say, that's a ghost writer. And ghost writers are very common in Christianity, in, in Christian books, because I've heard the guy preach, and he sounds nothing like that. There's no way this guy wrote this book. So ghostwriting is a thing, and we can tell that because it doesn't match their personality and who they are. So the, the four Gospels are four different perspectives. So, for example, Matthew and Luke record the birth of Jesus. 
virgin birth, shepherds in the field, a manger, wise men. We get that from Matthew and Luke. Mark does not record the birth of Christ at all. Instead, Mark begins with John the Baptist and he moves quickly to the baptism of Jesus. And Mark moves quickly throughout his entire gospel. I mean, everything that Mark does, you just get the impression he's just moving so fast. It's just really big highlights and on to the next story. Mark writes very differently. And then we have the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is unique. We know that Jesus spoke in parables. The kingdom of heaven is like this field. The kingdom of heaven is like uh, these people who are searching for coins. He's using all these parables. The Gospel of John does not contain one parable. They're not to be found. He doesn't record that. It covers different stories in different periods of the ministry of Christ. The other Gospels deal largely with kind of the middle section of Jesus' ministry, whereas the Gospel of John will talk about the early and later years of Christ's ministry. John covers more private conversations than the other Gospels. Think about the, the conversation in John 3 that he has with Nicodemus. This is a private conversation. Or John 4, the woman at the well. This is a one-on-one -on -one conversation. <clears throat> John covers private conversations of the Messiah. But one of the most striking differences is that John does not start with the birth of Christ in his humanity. There isn't a no occupancy sign in John that's turning away a young couple that's desperately looking for a place to spend the night. John is in essence doing the same thing though as far as going back to the beginning of the person of Jesus Christ. He was likely familiar with the Gospel of Mark. Mark was written before John. I think John had probably read Mark's Gospel. He was familiar with it. And so what Mark says Mark opens up, Mark 1, and says, Mark told you about the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. That's how Mark starts, the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. John says, I'm going to take you back farther to where it really starts. And the purpose of the book of John, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read this, uh, these couple of verses to you, but if you would uh, stand with me and turn to John chapter 1, I will read from John 1. So John 1 obviously is the beginning of the, the book of John, but let me read you how it ends. This is how the book of John ends. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The reason the book of John was written is right here at the very end. It's it's not a parable, it's not a riddle. John is very clear. The last words he writes, this is why we wrote this. There are a lot of things that Jesus did that I couldn't write about, just like there's a lot of things that I couldn't preach about. I couldn't cover everything about Jesus. And John says, I couldn't write everything about the Messiah, but these are written. What I just wrote these past 20 chapters, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John writes all of this to proclaim Jesus is the Son of God. He is included in that divine identity of the one true God. That's how John ends. John begins, read 18 verses of Scripture. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, 
and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Thank you, Lord, for that. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The translators make this a parenthetical statement. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. And I am going to, this morning, start this series off uh, focusing on uh, really the first three verses, and then verse 14. There's no way I could work through 18 verses, so I, I won't attempt that this morning. But in this first section, I'm going to work through these first two or three verses uh, in the first section, and then work through verse 14, and uh, hope and pray to give you a, a picture of uh, who Jesus really is in His very beginning. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word this morning that is anointed, divinely inspired, God-breathed, inerrant, and infallible. We trust it, we believe it, we embrace it, Lord, and we walk by it. And we ask you that your anointing would continue to minister in this place. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So in the beginning. Now I want to establish from the beginning of this sermon series that there really is not a beginning to God. The Word, and this is capital W, this Word is eternal because God is eternal. There never was a time that God was not. God is not created. The eternal Word uh, is not created. And our minds, however, require something to have a beginning and an ending. We can't grasp anything that's infinite. We can't grasp eternity. Everything that we know has a beginning date and an end date a creation and an expiration. It's, it's how we function. But God is not like this, and so it stretches our imagination. We celebrate Christmas. We celebrated Christmas yesterday, and we called it Jesus' birthday. And what we mean is the man Christ Jesus was born 2,000 years ago, probably not in December, probably sometime in the spring, but through tradition we celebrate it December 25th, and we say this is the birthday of Jesus. What we really mean by that is it's the time that, uh, that God was manifest in the flesh and that the man Christ Jesus was born 2,000 years ago because the eternal Word of God 
did not have a day that he was born. Now what does John mean by the word? This is bigger than just a group of, of letters saying the word welcome or community. It's letters that form an idea. That's not, this is not what John is referring to when he says the word. The word there, and, and <clears throat> we pause and say this, you will rarely hear me, rarely hear me ever go back and refer to original languages and try to get into that. Uh, one is because uh, I'm not very well qualified to do that. Uh, I, I think it takes someone who is really an expert in the languages to be able to even have those conversations. Uh, the possession of a Greek dictionary does not give someone the true knowledge needed to stand in a pulpit and talk about the Greek language. Language just simply does not work that way. It is way more complicated than that. So you're not going to hear me very often stand up here and refer to original languages. This is the one time, and it's because when we preach about John 1, most sermons will refer to this because it's, it's helpful to understand that your Bible in English is a translation. The language there is Greek, and that Greek word there is logos. That is the original word. When John is pinning his letter, his gospel, he's pinning the word logos. That's how we would say it in, in English. And John may to some extent be borrowing from an idea that was already in the culture. This is not a religious word. This was a word that was already out there in the culture. <clears throat> There were at least two people that were using this word in their philosophy. You have the Stoics, a group of Greek philosophers who were already around by this time. The Stoics use this word often to describe an approach to life. And I'm not going to go into all, it's not relevant how they were using all that. It's fascinating, but it's no relevance to the sermon. But the Stoics were using this idea already. John's grabbing this word from the culture. He's contextualizing what's going on. Philo is a first century Jew. He's influenced by Plato. There again, philosophy. And Philo is using this word a lot. But here's where I want to caution us, is that considering how much John refers to the Old Testament in his writings, it stands to reason that instead of just looking back to the culture that John's in and the way that he uses this word, we're better served looking at the Old Testament and seeing how the word is used in the Old Testament. Uh, because John is constantly, and we, we're comfortable doing this because John throughout all of the Old Testament, or throughout all of his gospel, is referring back to the Old Testament. He's grabbing imagery. John 3, the imagery of being born of water and spirit, uh, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, the reason Jesus can say, how are, you not a how are you a ruler of the Jews and you don't understand these things is because the Old Testament is filled with examples of God delivering His people through wind and water. And this is what Jesus is bringing to the conversation. He's using Old Testament imagery. And this, this idea of, of water runs rampant through the Gospel of, of John as a representation of something from the Old Testament. So John is, is we're really comfortable with looking at the Old Testament to see where John's getting his ideas. So, I want us to think about the word more in terms of what the Old Testament says than what was already existing in uh, culture of that day. But John is adapting. John is using a word uh, that was already there in the culture. In the beginning, God created. He created by speaking. So when John writes three words in chapter 1, in the beginning, if you know your Old Testament, your mind will immediately go to Genesis 1 because Genesis 1 says, in the beginning. John is playing off of the creation account, in the beginning. 
These people were familiar with their Bibles. They knew their Old Testament. It would be like me writing a book, and at the beginning of my book, I would write the words, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Now, that little phrase is the opening line to what is probably the most famous opening phrase of any book. It's Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. And this is how Dickens writes in the 19th century. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. If I were to write a book in 2021 and start that way, people who were familiar with Dickens would immediately say, he's playing off of that. You can't do that. You can't start a book that way. You're, you're copying Dickens, and I would be. And in this sense, John is echoing, I wouldn't say copying, but he's echoing the creation account. And we're going to see why is because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he creates by speaking. Now, what it means for God to speak is not, God doesn't have, you know, God is spirit. It's not like he has a mouth and hands, and we assign these attributes to him so we can relate to him. But whatever that means for God as spirit to speak, God speaks. And God says, let there be, and there was. There was a time in our universe when nothing existed before God, except God. Before matter, before anything existed, there was God. And anything that exists outside of God did not come into being by itself. God had to speak that into his existence. God speaks, and where there was nothing, there is now something. There's people get into all kinds of ideas about how this came about. Well, what matters is that before this came about, there was nothing. We call it ex nihilo, that out of nothing God spoke, and God is the only one that can do that. God speaks the created order into existence. Apples grow from seeds into trees, and human embryos become six-foot men because God spoke processes into place that man tries to understand, but it came from God. God created the process to create life. And all of this happens in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God creates something out of nothing. There was nothing, God speaks, now there's something. And John is echoing that. In the beginning was the Word. Before anything existed, existed John says, there was the Word. Psalm 33, by the Word of the Lord the heavens were made. Now the Word of God that John's using in the beginning was the Word. The Word of God in the Old Testament is a major theme. And what John is doing is he's building a bridge between the Old Testament and the person of Jesus Christ by saying, Here's the Word of God. Let's build a bridge between the Old Testament Scriptures and this person of Jesus Christ. Now we have to make a decision. Was the Word with God or was the Word God Himself? And John says, well, actually, you don't have to make a decision because both are true. I just said so. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The eternal Word was both with God and it was God Himself. The idea of Christ as the creative Word of God is found in the New Testament. So I want to read you a couple of scriptures here because I want to see how Christ relates to the creation. <clears throat> he is, Colossians 1.15, and he is referring to Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, who is him? It's Christ. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So that person of Jesus Christ is the center 
of everything in God's story. Jesus says this. He says, search the scriptures. This is in John later on. Search the scriptures. For in them you have life, and they are they which testify of me. He's speaking of the Old Testament. Jesus said, the Old Testament talked about me. I'm there. I'm in Genesis. I'm in Nehemiah. I'm in Esther. I'm in Ezekiel. Everything in the Bible becomes about Jesus Christ. He says, everything is sustained and created through Christ. Hebrews 1-2. The writer of Hebrews starts his story out this way. Good evidence that Hebrews may have been a sermon manuscript. If it was, this is how it begins. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He's speaking about the Old Testament. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. How does the universe operate? How does it stay all together? By the Word of God. The Word of God holds everything into existence and into order. Our passage this morning, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And here's a really complicated way of saying He made everything. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In other words, unless you have Him, you don't have anything. Everything's made through Him. And in, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. In verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son, full of, from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, part one, I want to establish that Jesus Christ is the Word of God. He is the Word spoken in the Old Testament, manifested in human flesh. I will be honest enough and transparent enough to say that I don't fully grasp what that means. I cannot wrap my head around who Christ really is. We stand back and marvel at the incarnation and we're just in awe of it because what does it mean for for Christ to dwell among us and then what does it mean then what's the implications that that the God of all eternity now dwells inside of me through the power of His Holy Spirit. And what kind of responsibilities, what kind of implications does that mean? If the God of the universe who created everything, who upholds the universe through the word of His power, now decides to dwell in me as His temple, what implications does that make for my life, for the decisions that I make? That I am not my own, I am bought with the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. What does that mean for me? Verse 14 and the Word became flesh. This is the incarnation. That Word, that Logos, became human flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when I said earlier that I'm going to have to skip over so much, it's because there's so much here I have to overlook to get to the word glory. And it's that idea of the glory of God through Christ that I want to focus on for the next few minutes. I want to focus on God's glory as we see it through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, the the biggest problem in the world today is not government corruption. It's not disease. It's not famine. It's not sickness, death, suffering. And all those things are terrible things that we deal with. It's not the biggest problem in the world. I would argue that the biggest problem in the world or one of the biggest problems in the world is that the world is blind to the glory of God. 
the world as a whole, all the masses of people are missing God's glory. God is the greatest treasure in the universe. And when people treasure anything over God, it becomes idolatry. And we don't think we have an issue with idolatry because we don't go home and have wooden statues on our fireplace mantle that we bow down and worship. Well, so idolatry, that's, that's an ancient thing or that's something that people do on the other side of the world. Uh, that's something that you, know, you drive down the, the road, whatever road that is in, in Saxe, and you have the 100 Buddhas sitting in the front yard for sale. Um, that's something that those people do. That's not for us. We don't think we have an issue with an idolatry, but we have our American idols that aren't sinful in and of themselves, but anything that is placed above the glory of God becomes idolatry. It could be food, sports, cars, houses, vacations, hobbies. It could be things that on the surface have nothing sinful about them, no evil connotation other than I elevated it to the place and I placed it above God's glory. And now I worship that more than I worship God. And anything that we treasure more than the glory of God is an idol. That is the great sin of Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 ends with mass perversion and reprobation. Like you read Romans 1 at the end, Paul is dealing with some heavy, weighty stuff. But that's not how he, how does he get there? He gets there because earlier in Romans 1, People didn't treasure God's glory. People not glorifying God, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Romans 1 looks like, a lot like modern day America. Verse 23 in Romans 1, they exchanged the glory of God, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The last part of the verse is kind of irrelevant. I don't care what they traded it for. The issue was in the first part of the verse. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God. When you make that exchange, you become an idolater. It's the essence of all of our sin, treasuring things above Christ. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In, the, in their case, the God of this world, little g, lowercase g, this is Satan. Paul calls Satan the God of this world. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers <clears throat> to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel <clears throat> of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What is spiritual warfare? How does Satan wage war on people? He blinds the minds of people from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, the image of God. That's how spiritual warfare works. The world cannot see God in the middle of his, all of his creations. You'd have men who intellectually are brilliant scientists and astronomers like Stephen Hawking and Carl Sagan, and they can stare into the night sky, and, and they just absolutely miss the main point of it all. And that's the glory of God. Like, that's what they're supposed to be seeing is God did all this. No matter what else you see, it's God did this with his creative word. I'm staring into this, and we've all probably done it, stare into the night sky, and, and we should be filled with awe and wonder that, that God did all of this. The, the psalmist did. David said, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. So what is God's glory? The, the word literally means something that has weight. Paul writes, for this light momentary affliction, talking about this life, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Glory has a weight to it. That, that's C.S. Lewis, probably his most famous book 
uh, and sermon was entitled The Weight of Glory, that there is this weightiness to this that God has when we enter into Him. And then John writes, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us is one of the most stunning ideas and life-changing things that can happen that we see in the Bible, that the God of the universe has a Son. Not that long ago. So in, in reference of time, it was only a hundred years ago that the airplane was invented. So that's about the span of about a hundred years. Take 20 of those spans of time and go back and you could walk up and shake hands with the Son of God. It's not that long ago in our history that God walked among us in flesh. <clears throat> The angel said to her, I, we read this last week and for Christmas Sunday, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And angel, and Mary said to the angel, how can these things be, seeing that I'm a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Heavenly Father, earthly mother, God and man fused into one. We tend to turn gritty Bible stories like this into Hallmark movies or greeting cards. Cute nativity scenes, the light shining around baby Jesus. None of that was just at all actually how it happened. Uh, this is uh, war movies often would romanticize war. And this is why uh, I'm trying to think of the movie that came out in the mid-90s about World War II. Um, no, um, Saving Private Ryan. There were stories when that came out, and now this is only 50 years after World War II ended at the time, stories about veterans of World War II getting up in mass and leaving the theater because they couldn't handle it. They said that's the first time we've seen the actual depiction of what war is really like. The famous line, I don't remember what general said it, but World War II, uh, the famous line, war is hell. It just, it's a terrible, awful thing. And often things like that get romanticized and, and a lot of times stories in the Bible become, we turn them into cute Sunday school children's stories like Noah and the Ark. Like this is mass genocide by God. Like there's a, this is judgment drowning lots and lots of people. Uh, this is not a uh, Sunday school story if we really stop and think about it. Uh, but we, we tend to, to do that and because this is not, the, the, the way that it really happened is not at all how we would bring the Son of God into this world if we had something to do with it. The angels announced the birth of Jesus to shepherds. If we were in control of the story, we would send angels to the White House and Capitol Hill and all the major news outlets that, hey, God is having a son born on this earth. This is, this is a time to pay attention to this birth. I mean, we have children of royalty even today uh, who are, are, are born and it gets mass media attention because a child of a prince or a child of a king is born. I'm like, that's really just a farce. Like 2,000 years ago, the son of the Most High was born in this world and nobody paid attention. God sent them to tell shepherds. God tells the angels, bypass all the 
main people. There's these shepherds in a field. Go tell them that Jesus is being born. God likes shepherds. God likes people who take care of sheep. He called a shepherd boy to be king of Israel. He calls those to offer pastoral care in a church. He calls them shepherds. Jesus didn't say, I am the good CEO. He said, I am the good shepherd. God likes shepherds. So he sends angels into a field and finds shepherds to tell that the Son of God is being born. And then Jesus grew up as an illegitimate child. Um, he would be, I'm not cursing, it would be the right word that in some people's eyes he was a bastard. Um, that would be the, the connotation of the way that some people looked at Jesus. Uh, not everybody is buying this idea that his father is actually God, right? This is not a, not everybody's buying that that's how Mary gets pregnant early. Um, and if they even believe that Joseph then is the father, um, they're, they're still, especially in this culture, there would have been a lot of shame uh, that would have been placed upon him growing up. Children are very cruel. It's, it's possible that Jesus was called names as a kid, that parents didn't let their children play with that boy down the street named Jesus because, well, you know the situation. We best stay away from those folks. Most of society didn't even think that he should have been born. He was a mistake. You're the product of your mother's mistake, and now you claim to be the Son of God. The language of Jesus as the Son of God is not only correct, but it helps facilitate a proper understanding of the Godhead. How do Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate to each other? It's biblical language. You cannot understand the oneness of God until you understand that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The New Testament opens with the birth of the Son of God, and we don't have a problem with that phrase because the Bible refers to, as we've read over and over, Jesus as the Son of God numerous times in the, in the New Testament. Uh, we just read in the annunciation by the angel that the child that you have, Mary, is going to be the Son of God. Something supernatural far above our comprehension happened when the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary. And that word overshadow, it means to envelop in a haze of, of brilliancy or to invest with supernatural influence. It's the only time in history that the Holy Spirit overshadows a woman and she becomes pregnant. God invested His divine nature into Mary and Jesus was born. He is both God and He is man. Jesus Christ would know the limitations of being a man. As a child, He had to learn to walk and talk like every other child. Like he wasn't secretly faking it that he didn't know how to do that because I'm the son of God. No, Jesus in his humanity, he has to learn all of these things. He was subject to Joseph and Mary. He listened to them. He had to listen to them as their child. Uh, the Bible says that he increased in wisdom and stature just like any other child. Jesus Christ was divinity and humanity fused into a body. He was God dwelling in the limitations of human frailty. He performed the divine act of forgiving sin. I mean, they said he's blaspheming because he says, you know, take up your bed and walk and your sins are forgiven you. And they said, who but God can forgive sin? He's doing things that only God can do because we include Jesus in the divine identity of one God. He is God. He can do things that God does. But in order for him to get from Jerusalem to Samaria, he doesn't get to fold his hands and blink his eyes and disappear and transport. He doesn't get to say, beam me up. No, he has to get on a donkey and ride or he has to put on his sandals and walk. Jesus Christ could not be in two places at once. He limited himself to time and space for the sake of our salvation. He came into this world. He established his kingdom. And then he sheds his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And then we have instances in Scripture where Jesus prays. 
The, the act of prayer is one of submission. When Jesus prayed, He submits Himself to the will of His Father. Read John 17. We'll get there someday uh, in this series where John 17, it's a, we call it the high priestly prayer. It's, it's a whole prayer about Jesus praying to the Father. And this kind of thinking can make us uncomfortable because we are rich in the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ, but we're kind of weak in our ideas of His humanity. But He is man and He is God. And it should never get more complicated than that. God never intended for His divine identity to become convoluted. But think about this. People ate and slept next door to God in flesh and they missed it because they were blind to the glory of God. He didn't work like we think that He would work. Now, imagine if you had all the power that Jesus had. I think this often is why God can't trust more of His people with power gifts, the gifts of healing and all this, because people go crazy with power. Uh, and, and Jesus had them. He had these, He, he could do anything. I, I used to do, 30 years ago, there was always a pack of cards in my pocket because I did card tricks. And everywhere I'd go, I'd pull out the cards and pick a card. And just the payoffs, just watching people's reactions. You just do bizarre stuff. And uh, it took a lot of practice because, you know, it, it is, they call it sleight of hand for a reason. My fingers are working the deck the whole time. And I'm having, you know, I just sit at home and practice because I guess I had that kind of time back then. And just practice your fingers. And, and people in card tricks, they're making assumptions. They, the, they are assuming something has happened when that at all did not happen. And the assumption leads to the payoff. Uh, so I, I love doing, but Jesus could have been the master at parlor tricks. He could have said, hey, see that donkey? I'm going to turn that donkey into a truck. To which people would have said, what's a truck? Uh, and then he would have made a truck and just showing them the regular truck would have been actually the, the bigger trick. You know, he's like, hey, look what I did. You know, this thing has wheels and pushed this lever down here and it moves by itself. Isn't that neat? He could have done all those things. Uh, he could have been the ultimate superhero. Like all these movies out now and superheroes, it's like Jesus could have been the ultimate superhero. But instead he lived behind a wall, a veil of flesh. He chose to do that. There is a temptation to the church today to operate from a position of worldly power. But the church has always been at her best when she operates from the margins of weakness. Nearly everyone overlooked Jesus. Those closest to him said, isn't this the carpenter's son? In other words, who does he think he is? So the next time you think you're being overlooked and your talents and gifts aren't being appreciated, just think about Jesus and you're probably in pretty good company. The only ministry any of us have is to reflect God's glory while loving and serving other people. After the resurrection of Christ, we see him operate in a very different dynamic. The limitations of his flesh fall away and he starts to operate supernaturally among his followers. The, the fact, and I've tried to find this in, to reference because I've thought about this for years and I've never read about this and I've tried to figure out why no one talks about this more. But I would argue that the fact that he could function physically just a few days after the brutality of Calvary shows us that he is no longer held hostage by human flesh. I mean, the man has a crown of thorns jammed upon his head. He's beaten. His back is ripped out. The, the muscles of his back, they have a whip that has bits of bone and glass. And they just, they whip him and then they pull it out and they just rip the flesh off. He has had nails driven through his hands and his uh, feet. He's had a spear run through his side. Um, I mean, 
three days later and he's up walking around and he's fine, that doesn't happen unless he's shedding off the, the limitations of his physical restrictions. The post-resurrection Christ vanishes from people's sights. He's walking on the road to Emmaus and all of a sudden he's like, I'm out of here and he just disappears. The disciples are in a room locked. They're in fear of their lives and all of a sudden Christ he doesn't just walk through the walls. He doesn't have to walk through anything. He just appears. The same man that had to take a taxi to get from one side of town to the other two weeks ago now can walk through walls and just move around because he's not limited by time and space. And from this point on in the New Testament, the humanity of Jesus continues to fade away while his divinity and his sovereignty come to the surface. And by the time we get to the book of Revelation at the end, we see him in the fullness of his glory. His glory is hid in the Gospels, in Revelation. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man. Son of man is the most popular, well-used description of Jesus, even in the Gospels. He's referred to as the son of man more than he's referred to as the son of God. I saw the Son of Man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet are like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice is like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And is this symbolic? Is this imagery? Yes, but it's imagery that represents the reality of who Christ is. This is trying to, in the limitations of language, trying to show the glory of God and who God is. And when a book starts out with a hero like that, I don't care what follows in Revelation. That's the beginning of Revelation. That's, that's in Revelation. When a book starts out like that, you can throw any Christ, beasts, whatever my way, the Son of Man, the Son of God, has a voice that sounds like the roaring waters and he has a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. He is undefeatable. The God of the universe who holds stars and his face is like the sun can deliver me from anything. And then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called, here it is, here's the payoff, the one that sits on the white horse, the name that he is called is the Word of God. In Revelation the ones of victorious, John says, that's the word. And it's the same John who's writing the Gospel of John, who says in the beginning was the word. And now, years, decades possibly later, he's exiled because of his beliefs in Jesus to an island called Patmos. It's a, there's a prison there. You could go to Patmos today. It's a real island out in the middle of the sea. And John is exiled there. And John says, in the beginning was the word, but this word came among us and dwelt among us in flesh and he's limited and he dies and he resurrects. But now, in the eschaton, in the end, the one that sits victorious in this description, his name is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arraigned in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
that's my Jesus. That's who we worship. This is the eternal God robed in flesh, displayed in all of His glory and might. The New Testament opens with Jesus as a newborn baby lying in a stable, and it closes with Him riding a white horse in the sky. There is none like Him. We worship Jesus because He is God and because He is God alone. So as I close this morning, I say to all of us to pray, Jesus, show us Your glory. People who first come to faith in Christ will hit a lot of roadblocks, but they'll make it if they just see His glory. Seasoned saints won't backslide at the end of their journey if they stay exposed to the glory of God. Everything we do is for God's glory. Paul writes, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. This is how you grow in Christ. This is how you were transformed after you were saved. Not by a church saying, do this, do this, do this, don't do this and this and this and this, and now you are going to be sanctified and you'll be like Christ. Paul says this is how a person becomes transformed. Paul's words, when we behold the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into the same image, Christ's image, from one degree of glory to another. Paul says the transformation of us reflecting God's glory is incremental. I'm here I'm not like Jesus yet. Uh, I'm not reflecting His glory perfectly yet, but I'm going to come here today and I'm going to look in the mirror of His Word. I'm going to walk out of here and be a little more like Him. On Tuesday afternoon when everything is chaotic in life and no one else around me that understands, I'm going to look into the image of the glory of God and I'm going to be transformed just a little bit more like Jesus. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life being transformed into His image from one degree of glory to another. And here's, here's the part of that verse that gets overlooked all the time. For this comes from the Lord. That's Jesus. He, when He says Lord, He's, he's, he's referring to uh, anytime that word Lord is used like that in the New Testament, He's referring to Jesus. This comes from the Lord who is Spirit. The Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You have Christ in you through the power of His Spirit. It is rampant through the New Testament that it is the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that person of Christ that dwells inside of us. Through the Holy Spirit, we're beholding the glory of God. This is the key, one of the keys to overcoming the failures and obstacles in your life. When you desire to live in His glory more than anything else, you'll say no to the temptation, not out of willpower, because willpower is a <coughs> terrible way to overcome sin. It doesn't work. But when you see the glory of God and you say, I'd rather have God's glory, the weight of that, than anything else that this world has to offer, You'll live in right relationship with Him. You'll live righteously before Him. We are beholding the glory of God. How does this relate to all of us? It's that through the power of the Holy Spirit, He is always with us. Even when He walked on this earth 2,000 years ago, if you needed help from Jesus and He was in Samaria and you were in Jerusalem, you got to go find Jesus or you got to wait till He comes back to town. But now... He is through the power of His Holy Spirit. He dwells inside of His people. We have His Spirit among us. We have His Spirit with us. And it is that Spirit. His Spirit is that eternal Word of God. And when you really start believing and trusting this, 
you won't have to live for God out of emotion. You won't have to live out of God based on how you feel. Your feelings are a terrible barometer for God. There are days when you feel God is so close and near, and there are other days when you feel like He's a million miles away. That's because your emotions go like a turnstile door. But God doesn't operate on a turnstile door in and out of your heart based on what kind of day you've had or how you feel. He took up residence. You are the temple of His Spirit, and He lives among you. And even when you cannot trace Him, you can trust Him. When you cannot follow Him near, you can have faith in Him that He is with me. That's the, that's the mark of Christian maturity is to say, God, I don't feel you. I, I don't even feel like a Christian today. I feel like you're a million miles away. I sure have disappointed you this week, but I know that you're for me. I'm going to reset. I'm going to repent, and I'm going to look into your glory so I can be transformed back into your image and your glory. That's what it means to walk with the Word, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, your Word is given to us today to encourage, to rebuke, to exhort, to lift up. It has so many facets of what it does today. And I thank you for that because I've brought your word into the best of my ability, not my words. So Lord, as we dismiss and we go our ways and we live uh, what seems like very ordinary lives, we know that you are with us and that we take the scriptures that we have heard and read and, and listened to this morning, we take them at face value. We believe that they are truth. We believe that they are absolute, infallible truth and that through the power of your Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us, Lord, that that eternal word dwells in us, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we are going to exult in that. Lord, we are going to worship you for that. And we are going to know that whether we feel you or we don't feel you, you are so near to us today. You are with us and you will never leave us. You will never forsake us. You are with us until we die and we are with you in your presence of the Lord or until you come back in your second coming, Lord, and take us and we will be with you forever then. But until those days come, Lord, you are with us through the power of the Holy Spirit, the eternal Word, the Christ that we read with in Scriptures, the Christ that we read in the Gospels, the Christ that we read in Revelation. That same Jesus is here with us and in us through the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord. And we are in awe of that. We can't comprehend it, but Lord, we trust it and we believe it, Lord. And now we go our ways and we commit to you today to live sanctified, holy, pure, and clean lives and to be worshipers and disciples of Jesus Christ. And we ask all this in the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you this morning.